Fitting words to be on our lips before coming to this passage. Mine is the kingdom and the glory and the power. These things belong to you, O God. Your kingdom come. You'll see what I mean when we make our way into the passage. Daniel chapter 2, we come to verse 31. Daniel 2, verse 31, as we continue to make our way through this prophecy of Daniel. Uh, Oh, by the way, page uh, 738 in your Bibles, if you're using the Bible in front of you. You may remember from last time that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the Babylonian Empire, had recently invaded Jerusalem, dragging back with him not only vessels from God's temple, but also youths the brightest and the best, to be reprogrammed as Babylonians. Among them, Daniel and his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, perhaps better known to you by their Babylonian names that seem to have stuck in history, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar was still himself a bit new to this emperor business, when he had a terrible dream. We read that dream last week, but we didn't dwell on the dream itself so much as the emphases that Daniel placed upon uh, the divine and upon the Lord's rule in his conversation with Nebuchadnezzar, keeping God on his lips so that Nebuchadnezzar could not keep God from his mind. By the way, I saw, uh, if we may extend last week's sermon for just a moment, a wonderful example of just this, and maybe you did in the newspaper just a couple of days ago. Uh, Debbie pointed out this article to me. uh, An American doctor, Kent Brantley, medical missionary to West Africa, who is infected with the deadly Ebola virus that has taken the lives of hundreds of people so far, As he was discharged, now well, of course, from the hospital, he too kept God on the forefront in his statement to the press. He told them this, Through the care of Samaritan's Purse and SIM missionary team in Liberia, the use of an experimental drug, and the expertise and resources of the healthcare team at Emory University Hospital, God saved my life. Just so, Daniel gave God the glory, both in his conversation around the dream, and now, as we shall see, God gets the glory in the interpretation of the dream. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you will open your word to us, that your spirit will teach us these marvelous things. This long-ago history of a dream of an emperor, uh, a millennia ago, still as important, still as relevant as ever, if not even more so in this day in which we live. So speak to us, Father. May it be your voice and yours only that we hear. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 2, we'll pick up at verse 31 and read through 45. You saw, O king... And behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. 
The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, And the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Recently, a pastor friend of mine agreed with me in conversation, or I with him, that perhaps the hardest part of preaching is the work of illustration. Exposition's a pretty straightforward deal. The pastor grapples with the text using the tools of language and text and its context and so on and, and uh, studying the language and then presenting those findings to the, con- uh, to the congregation. Application has its challenges, of course, bringing the text home to roost in the hearts of the hearers, shining the light of the text in those corners of our hearts and of our lives. Illustrating, on the other hand, takes a whole lot of thought and work. And while Jesus was a master of illustration, uh, those who represent him in the pulpit have a struggle to follow him in doing that well. But uh, then there are passages like this one that defy illustration because they themselves 
convey and contain such vivid and overwhelming pictures already. I mean, try to imagine this on the magic of the silver screen. What Hollywood could do with this dream and not exaggerate one bit. Looming, immense, oh, before the tyrant's trembling heart and eyes and mind is this gigantic statue. Fearsome and shining, its head massive and of fine gold and glimmering in the light. And the chest and arms silver, polished and gleaming. Next, the thighs of bronze and its legs of iron and feet mixed iron and clay together. Who could, who could possibly pose a threat to such imposing greatness as this statue conveyed? But then, suddenly, a stone is carved out of the mountain nearby. Who's carving it? No human hands. But it rises and it flies through the air and hits the statue right at the base and there's an explosion. And the statue explodes into little tiny fragments and shreds like those little paper-like holes that are caught on the wind when wheat berries are thrown up into the air during the threshing process and just blow away until they're gone. What can it mean? Imagine being in Nebuchadnezzar's place, having seen this vision. What could it mean? What could this dream mean? Maybe it was an actual, actually a reflection of his own quiet fears, having so recently come to the throne himself. One psychologist observed that People who have unrealistic ideas or too high an opinion of themselves or who make grandiose plans out of proportion to their real capacities have dreams of flying or of falling. The dream compensates for the deficiencies of their personalities and at the same time it warns them of the dangers of their present course. Well, I don't know about that, but... Uh, Psychology or not, and whatever was involved on Nebuchadnezzar's side, the fact was this dream came from God, much as Daniel makes perfectly clear. And so was the interpretation also from God. Daniel explains the statue that in its sections stands for successive kingdoms, one after another. To Nebuchadnezzar's delight and thrill, of course, he should find that the golden head in its glory and splendor is he. Whether he actually heard the rest of the interpretation or not, I don't know. It looks to me like once he understood his own place in this dream, nothing else really mattered all that much. I'm not sure whether he even caught the implication of the after you in verse 39. His head, his 
golden head is filled with his own present power. And real power it most certainly was. Don't doubt that for a moment. It sounds like flattery, but Daniel's only slightly exaggerating when he calls him the king of kings. In verse 37, causes us to reel back, but that's what the scripture says in that place. Meaning, of course, what it does in its context. Ascribes to him authority over the children of man, but also over the beasts of the field and even the birds of the air. Babylon was the superpower of the day. But who made it so? Who made Babylon the superpower? And here we come to the first point, the first point of two, actually. And it's, first of all, the nature of earthly kingdoms. How did Babylon come to dominate the scene? Just this, verse 37. The God of heaven gave him the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And the same was true for every successive kingdom after that. God raises up kingdoms. He places kings on their thrones. He puts leaders in their offices. He puts presidents in the White House. And when it pleases him, he brings down kingdoms and tyrants and kings and presidents and replaces them as he pleases. Daniel goes on to list a kingdom each of silver and bronze and iron and iron mixed with clay, both wet and glazed, if you noticed, hard clay and wet clay in those feet of that statue. The uh, hard clay being more like, oh, um, pottery, I suppose. I read it compared even to China uh, this week, as in China where iron not mixing very well with clay, not clinging to clay, of course, and so uh, infused with weakness. As it turned out, the kingdoms or empires that followed Babylon, and which according to the tradition interpretation were represented by each of those metals, were these. Persia was the silver, which followed Babylon. We'll, by the way, hear more about Persia in chapter 5. And then Greece, the bronze, and Rome, the iron. Earthly kingdoms, every one. And every one of them raised up by God for its specific time and purpose according to his perfect divine plan and direction. This has always been the case, hasn't it? It's always been this way. It's it's the way things are today. When the colonies declared independence from Great Britain in 1776, God was directing that history and the establishment of the United States of America. When the Bolshevik Revolution took place in 1917, giving rise eventually to the Soviet Union and Soviet Communism, God was on the throne. And when Soviet Communism fell, and that dark tyranny that had held so many in its icy grip and had killed an estimated 100 million people in the 20th century, in order to hold on to its power and its authority, suddenly disintegrated. Why did that happen? Who brought that great change? Well, we all know the answer, right? It was Ronald Reagan. Exactly. And all of those trips and all of those diplomats and all of the bargaining and all of the convincing Mr. Gorbachev. 
We may speak of secondary causes all day long, of course. But the fact is, it was God who brought down that wall. And when the time comes for the United States of America to meet her demise, as she will, some inevitable day, God will be standing there at the grave of the USA. My brothers and sisters, don't hitch your wagon to a nation. Don't put your hope or your confidence in your country. God gives power. God takes away power. No matter how many men will credit themselves and boast in themselves like Nebuchadnezzar did in the end when God says, your time is up. They find themselves in their vast empires on the ash heap of history. There is for every empire that ever existed and ever will save one that divine after you. Remember the pictures a few years ago of the statue of another leader who recently ruled with an iron fist? In fact, it was the very, it's the very land where Nebuchadnezzar was emperor long, long before him. Remember seeing that? I said a few years, but of course it's hard to believe. It's, it's been 11 years ago that we watched on our television sets as the statue of Saddam Hussein in uh, Furtis Square in Baghdad was pulled down by a chain wrapped around its neck and was beheaded before the eyes of the watching world. God is still ruling, still directing the nations today as he was then, and the statues that that represent them continue to fall and to be shattered into pieces. But what is it that shatters the nations, that determines the times of the empires? It's that rock. It's the rock, the rock hewn by no human hands. And what is that rock? We've talked about the metals, what they mean, but what is that rock? Or rather, we might ask, whom? And that brings me to the second point, the nature of the kingdom of God. At the climax of the king's dream, the rock that struck the feet of the statue that destroyed it and then grew to become a mountain to fill all the earth, Daniel interpreted in verse 44, as a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Well, who is that rock? The rock, of course, is Christ. Of course it is. And it was carved from the load of biblical teaching. In Psalm 118, verse 22, we read, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus applied that verse to himself in Matthew 21. Have you never read in the scriptures, he says, The stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, Jesus draws the application. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's Jesus. He is the stone. Isaiah 28, put it this, Isaiah in chapter 28 of his prophecy, you might remember from several years ago in our series here in this sanctuary on that prophet, puts it this way. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be dismayed. The Apostle Peter, just to cover all the bases, quotes all three in his epistle. The rock is Christ And he has come crashing into the world, and the mountain that was to grow from that rock is continuing to grow today. From the day of his birth in Bethlehem to this very day. From the preaching of twelve poor men who turned the world upside down with the gospel. To this day, the rock grows and grows and grows. The kingdom of God is spreading, and it's growing, and it's filling the earth. Alexander McLaren, I've quoted him, of him, from him to you before. I love the way he writes. A thought from God is stronger than all armies, and outconquers conquerors. By the mystery of Christ's incarnation, by the power of weakness in the preachers of the cross, by the energies of the transforming spirit, the God of heaven has set up the kingdom. It shall never be destroyed. Its divine origin guarantees its perpetual duration. You and I are watching today, dear flock, as that rock continues to grow. Every day it spreads. Every day it conquers and takes more ground. How? Just this. By adding souls, one after another, after another. The church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, is spreading and growing and filling the earth. Now I hear your objection. I hear what you're thinking, but uh, didn't we just pray for Sudan? Aren't Christians being persecuted all over the world? Did not Greta Van Susteren report just last week? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians are suffering for the name of Christ, and the number is growing, staggering, she called it. We might add statistics. Christians being persecuted in some 50 nations Around the world. But let me ask you this. Why are Christians suffering in countries all over the globe? Because Christ 
is there. Because Christ is there in all those nations where Christians are suffering for the name. Indeed, in some places where Christians are being persecuted the most intensely, the church is growing the most wildly. In China, where Christians suffer so terribly, the church is growing like crazy. And it really is true, that ancient idiom, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The rock is growing. And in the meantime, make no doubt about this. Nations and empires that set themselves up against this rock will find themselves like Nebuchadnezzar's statue dashed to pieces and blown away like chaff on the wind. Those who thought to use their powers to stop Christians and to stop Christ, to harass his sheep, will find themselves toppled and destroyed by the power of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. All men who refuse to submit to the rule of the everlasting king will find themselves one day ground to powder under that rock. Is that not, that sounds harsh, but I'm only saying what Jesus said of himself. Or you remember this? Where in the Bible does God laugh? Where does he laugh? He laughs in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and against his anointed, which is Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. The Lord holds them, the psalmist says, in derision. He derides them who would rebel against them, against him, and against his Christ. All who refuse him, who set themselves against him. Which brings me to you and to me. Where do you stand when it comes to this rock? I tell you, you may either build your house. On this rock, who is Christ? Or, the Bible says, you may stumble over that rock and be dashed to pieces. And the Bible presents you with a very real choice to make. Whether to be founded upon that rock or to be destroyed. By it. You know, you know what I pray for you and hope for you and for myself. 
for us to bow the knee to Christ. To, as Psalm 2 goes on to say, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. Kiss the Son. Bow the knee to Christ now, today. Receive the rock. The rock, as we sing of him sometimes in the sanctuary, the rock of ages for yourself and with him, eternal life that comes only through him. Either way, this is a fixed truth. The dream is sure. The interpretation is certain. As we'll sing this evening at the close of our evening service, the last hymn that we'll sing tonight, the Lord willing. The day you gave us, Lord, is ended. We'll say this. So be it, Lord, your throne shall never Like earth's proud empires pass away, but stand and rule and grow forever till all your creatures own your sway. Amen.